three umpires were asked the question of how they determine if a pitch was a ball or a strike and each gave different answers. The first said, I call it as it is. If it's a ball, I call it a ball. If it's a strike, I call it a strike. I call it as it is. The second umpire looked to the first and said, well, I'm not like this guy over here, pointing to the first umpire. He says, I'm not always for sure if it's a ball or a strike, but I call it like I see it. If it looks like a ball, I call it a ball, and if it looks like a strike, I call it a strike. I call it like I see it. Well, the third umpire's response was completely different from the first two. He said, I don't bother with what it is or isn't, or what it looks like or doesn't look like, because the truth of the matter is, it ain't nothing until I call it. I love this story because it gives us an excellent illustration, an excellent description of what the three predominant views about truth are in our world today. The first umpire represents what many refer to as the pre-modern view of truth. This was the predominant view of truth up until the Enlightenment of the 17th century. And it's the view that says that there is really objective truth. There is, there is true truth. There is real truth out there. And we really can know it. And there is no separation between us and it. This view says the truth is out there and we can know it. That's why the first umpire, when asked... How do you determine whether a pitch is a ball or a strike? He says, I call it as it is. His, his view on umping, and maybe his view on the world is, because there is objective truth, and I can know what that truth is, I call it as it is. The second umpire represents what is known as the modern view of truth. This was the predominant view of truth in the Western world from the Enlightenment, up until the 20th century. And this view of truth says that there is such a thing as truth, but it's subjective. It lies in the hands of the observer. That's why the second umpire says, I call it as I perceive it to be. I call it like I see it. If it looks like a strike, I assume it's a strike because it looks like a strike, so I call it a strike. If it looks like a ball, I assume it's a ball because it looks like a ball, so I call it a ball. You see, this view of truth is dependent upon the observer. And then there is another view of truth that was the predominant view of truth in mo- throughout most of the 20th century and is the predominant view today, and this is what is called the postmodern view of truth. This view says there's no such thing as objective truth. So there's nothing to go and seek out and define. This view basically says, whatever I think, whatever I believe, whatever I decide is what becomes true for me. That's why the third umpire, when asked, said it doesn't matter what it is or isn't, or what I think it is or isn't. The only thing that matters is what I determine. Whatever I say is what it is. That's the postmodern view. And these three different views about truth, though they have been the prevailing view at one time or another, we encounter each of these views in our world today, depending upon who you talk to. 
And because of these differing views, there's a lot of confusion in our world today when it comes to the nature of truth, right? And not only is there confusion in our world about truth, but there is confusion within the church about truth, isn't there? I have encountered each of these views within the church. I've met some who say, I know the truth because I know the Bible. That's a pre-modern view of the faith and of the scriptures. I've also met others who say, well, I feel as if the scriptures are true, but that's just the way I feel. That's the way I see it. I think I'm right, but that's just my thoughts on the matter. That's the modern view of the faith. And then I've encountered some who pick and choose what to believe and not to believe about the Bible and the Christian faith, and they argue that what they decide is true is what's true for them, and what's not is not. That's the postmodern view. I had an encounter with someone a while back with this worldview and when I tried to explain to him all, that all Scripture is inspired by God, is, is breathed out by God, is God-breathed, and when I tried to share with him about the reliability of the Scripture, he just responded with, well, that's what's true for you. And what's true for you may be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. That's the postmodern view. So you see, there's a lot of confusion even within the church about the nature of truth. So today, with this in mind, we're going to be talking about truth. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. We are continuing our series through John, entitled Knowing Jesus from John. And what we're going to discover this morning in chapter 8 of John is that this issue about the nature of truth is nothing new. In fact, this issue of truth as it pertains to Jesus is the main theme of this chapter, chapter 8. In fact, the words true and truth and truly are used more than 21 times in this chapter alone. So this morning we're going to be talking about the nature of truth and we're going to be talking about knowing Jesus as the truth. And my hope for you in here this morning is if you're confused about truth, the truth of who God is, the truth of who you are, the truth about the person of Jesus, my prayer is that you would come to understand the truth, that you would come to recognize the truth this morning, that you would come to know the truth, and the truth, as Jesus says in this text, I pray would set you free. So John chapter 8. One thing we've seen over the past few chapters is there is this growing conflict, this growing tension between Jesus and the religious leadership of the day. There is this tension that is building, and we're going to see in today's chapter that it's almost come to a boiling point. And one of the reasons why is because there is this confusion among them about the nature of truth. You have the Jewish religious leaders who thought they knew the truth, they thought they were in the right, and thought it was Jesus and his followers who needed to be corrected. But what we find in the scriptures is that it was really the other way around, wasn't it? They were the ones in the wrong. They were the ones who needed correcting. Now the good news for them is they have Jesus right there with them. 
to set the record straight, though many of them do not respond to him positively, though many of them refuse to accept him as the truth. He's right there speaking the truth to them. And the same is true for us today, isn't it? We're in the same boat in our world today, folks. We really are. There is confusion in our world today about truth, isn't there? And if left to ourselves, Scripture is clear that we would not think rightly about God. If left alone, we would be in the same boat as the religious leaders in Jesus' day who were misled. We too, if left to ourselves, would not know the truth. We too would be left in the dark. If left by ourselves, we'd be left in the dark to matters of truth. But the good news for us as well is those in Jesus' day is that we have Jesus with us today, don't we? Bringing truth to us. We have here in, in this book right here the very words of Christ, don't we? We do. And we have here in this book chapter after chapter from divinely inspired writers who tell us about the truth, about the truth of who God is, about the truth of who we are, about the person and work of Jesus. And we also have His Spirit to reveal these truths to us. So what I want to do for the rest of the morning is I want to show you from this text what Jesus reveals to us about what's true. First, He reveals to us the truth about God. The truth about God. And the first truth he reveals to us about God is that though God can be known, many do not know him. God can clearly be known. Jesus makes that known. But there are many who do not know him. And there are many who, who think they know him, but they, in fact, do not know him. That's the point here. Look at John chapter 8, verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So let me bring you up to speed with what's going on here. Remember, we, we learned in the previous chapter, in John chapter 7, that Jesus' popularity had greatly diminished from where it was in the first part of John chapter 6. And the people are divided, and they're confused when it comes to the person of Jesus. Well, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus attempts to, to clear up some of the confusion about himself by saying these words. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying, I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. That's who I am. But notice in the following verses, the Jewish religious leaders are still skeptical and critical of him, and they question him on these claims. In fact, at the end of verse 13... They basically say to Jesus, what you are saying, your testimony is not valid. Because you're saying these things about yourself, but there's no one to support these claims. 
There's no one here to speak for you on your behalf to affirm that what you're claiming and what you're saying is in fact true. Who is going to testify for you, Jesus, and support these claims of yours that you are the Savior and the Messiah and the light of the world? Well, Jesus responds with this. Look at verse 17. And again, look at verse 18. He says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, there's one, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me, there's two. He says, you want an eyewitness? You want someone to speak on my behalf? I'll tell you who's on my side. He said, the Father is the one who has sent me. He is the one who affirms me. He is the one who bears witness about me. And, and then these Jewish religious leaders ask a question that is very telling, isn't it? They ask him in verse 19, where's your father? You see? They're confused about who Jesus' father is. To which Jesus responds rather harshly but truthfully to them by saying, you don't know me, nor do you know my father. He's basically telling them, though you claim to have all the answers... Though you claim to know God and claim to be his closest followers, Jesus tells them, because you're confused about me, because you question the truth of my testimony, because you stand there cynical and skeptical of me, reveals to me that it's your testimony that's not valid. Though you claim to be followers of the one true God, you have rejected the one whom God has sent which proves to me that you don't truly know me, nor do you know my Father. And the message that Jesus gives us here, folks, is important for us today, isn't it? Because there are many out there who believe that you can take God and leave Christ out. There are many, like the Pharisees, who believe that it's we as Christians who are misled. There are many, like the Pharisees, who believe that you can be a follower of God without believing that Jesus is God and the only way to God. Many Muslims believe this. Many Jews believe this. Many in the church believe this. But may that not be true of us, folks, because that's not possible. Listen, if you reject Christ, you reject God. Bottom line. If one rejects the Son, they reject the Father because the Father affirmed the Son. The Father sent the Son. There are many who miss this, therefore there are many who don't truly know God. The second point really builds upon this first point here. Another key truth Christ reveals about God here in chapter 8 is this. To truly know Him, you must know His Son. To truly know God, you must know His Son. Look at the end of verse 19 once again. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus is saying here that He and the Father are one. Therefore, to know one is to know the other. Skip down to verse 42. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Once again, Jesus is saying here, God the Father sent me. I have come on his behalf, and if you knew him, if God were truly your father, then you would love and trust in me. If you, if you knew him, you would accept me. But you're not accepting of me, Jesus says, which reveals to me that you don't truly know and love him because to know and love him is to know and love me. Are you with me? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is showing them that they cannot have one without the other. They cannot have the Father and leave the Son because the two are one. And he has been sent by the Father and the Father affirms him. And Jesus even says this a couple of chapters over that he and the Father are one, right? John chapter 10, verse 30, he makes that exact point. And, and not only are they one in essence, notice they're one in message too. Look at John chapter 8, verse 26 through 28. Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. See, they're still confused. They're, they're back on that earlier point. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me to speak. Notice in verse 26, Jesus says, I have come to declare to the world what the Father has told me. So Jesus is making the point here, not only has he come to earth to show people what the Father is like, but he has also come to declare his message. And, and, and remember, we talked about this in John chapter 1. In John 1, Jesus is referred to as the Word of God. He is the revelation of God. He is God's revelation to us. That's why in John 1, he's called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. He is the living Word. He is the living revelation of God to us. And, and also notice here that not only does Jesus speak the Word of God to us, but that's all he speaks to us. He doesn't ever speak anything else to us. He doesn't ever reveal anything else to us other than the Word of God because He is God. And He is the very revelation of God to us. Look at verse 28 once again. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Notice Jesus says here, I don't ever speak on my own authority. He's never here speaking out of turn, or out of line, or out of character with what the Father speaks. Anytime He says, I ever speak, I only speak what He tells me to speak. Again, Jesus is showing how closely identified he is with the Father. He's saying here, I am one with the Father so that when you get me, you get the Father. And when you get him, you get me. If you accept my words, you accept his words. If you reject my words, you reject his words. There's none of this taking what God the Father says and leaving what I say because if you reject what I say, you're rejecting what he says because I only speak what he speaks. He says, I speak the message of the Father. I am the very living word of the Father. 
I am the revelation of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you get it? And I know I'm overemphasizing and I'm belaboring this point, but it's so necessary that you get this. It's so very important. Because again, there are many in our world today, some within the church who believe that one can be a follower of God, one with God, right with God apart from Christ. I guarantee you, I've seen it. Folks, that's not possible. Don't you see how impossible that is by looking at Christ's own words here? And think about how offensive this message would have been to these Jewish religious leaders in the first century. I mean, these guys are the religious elite, aren't they? They're the cream of the crop. They're the professional theologians in the business of knowing the truth about God and you have this lowly Galilean, this son of a carpenter who lacked any kind of formal education standing before them saying, you guys don't know squat about God because you have rejected me and I am God and I am the very revelation of God. I mean, put yourself in these guys' shoes. That would have been hard to hear, right? But they needed to hear it, and guess what? So do we. We do. Because, again, many people are in the same boat today. Did you know the majority of people in our country today believe in God? Did you know that? Last I checked, it was about 95%. 95% of people believe in some sort of God in some way, shape, or form. So our problem is really not an atheism problem, folks. I mean, you may have problems individually with with someone you know, friends or family, but as a whole, our problem is not an, an atheism problem. Our problem is not that people don't believe in God. Our problem is that people don't know the one true and living God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. That's our problem. I guarantee you, if you were to go to Jacksonville this afternoon or to the surrounding areas, to Rusk or to Troop or to Bullard or on into Tyler, and you approach people at random and you ask them if they believed in God, the majority of them would say that they do. But if you ask the same people if they believe that the God they believe in is the one who has revealed himself through the person of Jesus, far fewer would affirm that. And listen, folks, that's what's truly important. I've met people, once again, in the church who have said, well, you know, at least so-and-so believes in God, you know? At least so-and-so is somewhat religious. That's got to count for something. Folks, Scripture says that counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. We can't stop at that and be satisfied with that. God is not called for us to go out and make sure people are religious. He has called for us to take his message, the true message about himself, the message of Jesus, to those who do not know it. He's called for us to go out and not just convince people that he exists in some way, shape, or form, but he's called for us to go out and share with the world that he exists and that he has come down and that he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. He has called for us to share with the world that to know Jesus is to know God and to not know Jesus is to not know him. How many of y'all are familiar with this sign up on the screen here? How many of y'all have seen this before? Y'all seen that before? Yeah, it's, 
It's kind of catchy, right? It says, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace, K-N-O-W. But then there's another message in there as well, right? N-O, no Jesus, no peace. Well, with uh, uh, this in mind, with this sermon in mind, I uh, made a new sign based upon this one. I made this one here. It says, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no God, K-N-O-W. But then there's the other message as well. No Jesus, N-O, no God. Folks, that's supposed to be our message to the world. And that's Jesus' message here to the Pharisees in John 8. And his message throughout his earthly ministry, isn't it? And the message of the apostles after. This is a key truth that he reveals to them about God. He tells them, you want to truly know God? You have to truly know me. You want to belong to God? You have to accept me. You have to receive me. So that's the truth about God. Second truth he addresses here is this, the truth about us. Truth about us. We've addressed the truth about God. Now let's discuss the truth about us. And what do we learn about ourselves from Jesus in this chapter? First thing we learn is this. We learn that we are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to sin. In verse 30, we see that there were some in the crowd who responded somewhat favorably to Jesus and his message. We're told that as Jesus was speaking, many believed in him. And so Jesus gives these who show at least an outward interest in him, he gives them an important message in verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus tells those in the crowd who are considering his claims that he's making about himself, he tells them that if they would follow him, if they would trust in him and abide in him and make him the Lord of their life, they would be set free. Well, this message upsets some of the skeptics and the doubters still in the crowd. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They basically say, what are you talking about, become free? Say, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. So who are you to stand there and tell us that we can be set free? Free from what? We're free already. Well, notice Jesus' response here. He basically informs them that they're wrong on both accounts. One, he says, you're not free. And two, he says, you're not sons of Abraham. Let me show you where we see this. First, look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. His point here is that they need to be freed because they're a slave to their own sinfulness. And I guarantee you that there would have been some in the crowd at that time who were not a part of the Jewish religious elite who might have questioned Jesus on this. My guess is there might have been some in the crowd who said, well, what's so bad about these guys, Jesus? You know, they're more devout than we are. They're trying their best to follow God and do the right thing. I mean, they're not perfect, but is it fair to label them slaves to sin? And the answer, of course, is yes. That is a fair label. And the reason why is because they rejected Christ continually. They were slaves to the sin of unbelief. And there's no greater sin than that, is there? 
So Jesus is letting those in his audience know, those who don't yet see their need of salvation, he's letting them know salvation is needed. He's letting those who think they are safe and secure know that if they're not trusting in him for their salvation, they are not safe and secure. They are in fact slaves who need to be freed. He also has another word here for those who claim to be okay spiritually because of their ties to Abraham. Look at what he says to them in verse 44. This is tough. He says, you are of your father who? The devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow, that's going to leave a mark. That's harsh, isn't it? Listen to what he says here. He says, you guys are enslaved to sin and you're blinded by your own sinfulness so much so that you fail to even see who your father is. He says, you're of your father who? God? No. Abraham? No. The devil. So not only does he say, you know, God's not your father. Not only does he say, Abraham's not your father. He says, your father is the devil. And as you can imagine, that's not going to go over well. Not only does he say they need to be set free, but he's telling them that their father is Satan. Now again, think about Jesus' audience here, folks. These are the religious leaders of the day. The professional theologians. The cream of the crop. So we learn here, no matter how religious, how devout one is, if you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. And if you reject the Father, you're enslaved to sin and you belong to your father, the devil. Not my words, Jesus' words. So that's one truth we learn about ourselves here. A heavy truth, right? From Jesus in John chapter 8. We learn that without him, we will remain enslaved to sin. The other truth we learn is this. We also learn here, without Jesus, we will perish. It's Christianity 101. Look back up at verse 21 of John 8. So he, Jesus, said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Notice what Jesus is saying here to the Jewish religious leaders. He says, I'm going away. You're going to seek me and you will die in your sin. Now, what sin is Jesus talking about here? Again, it's the sin of unbelief, right? It's their sin of rejection. He's letting them know that they are rejecting God because they are rejecting him. And as a result of that sin, that sin of unbelief, the result of that is death. And he's not just talking about a physical death here, right, folks? We all die physically, but he's talking about a a spiritual death. He's referring to what Scripture calls the second death, eternal death. He's talking about eternal separation from God in hell. That's what he means here when he says you're going to die in your sin. That's the consequence of unbelief. And you may be thinking to yourself, oh, surely that's not what he means. Well, notice he repeats his point in verse 24 for emphasis, just in case we didn't get it. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's letting them know, without me, you will perish. Now notice something interesting here. Back in verse 21, Jesus says, you will seek me. What does he mean by that? 
I thought these were the religious leaders who had rejected Jesus. What does he mean? You will seek me. I believe his point here is, is, is this. He's telling them, you're going to continue to search out for a Christ. You're going to continue to seek out a Savior. You're going to continue to look for a Messiah, and you're not going to find him because you've already rejected him. Because I am he. So you see their problem here? Not only do they not know God, they don't know Jesus, they, uh, they also don't know the truth about themselves either, do they? They think they're the people of God. They think they're living a life that is pleasing to Him, but Jesus reveals to them that they are in fact slaves to sin and enemies of God and are going to die in their sins if they do not repent because they have rejected Him. And again, folks, many are in this boat today. There are many today, like the scribes and the Pharisees, who have rejected Jesus and who are searching for another Savior, another Messiah. They're convinced that Jesus is not the answer, and they're in passionate pursuit of another. And many on this path feel as if they're on the right one. You ever notice that? They do. Many on this path are, are convinced that they're headed in the right direction. And maybe I'm describing some of you in here this morning. Listen, if this is you, I pray you let Christ's word seek in deep. Let these seek in deep. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He said, without me, you will perish. Those are the facts, folks. That's the truth. Those are the very words of the Lord Jesus. And I have no doubt that there are some in here this morning who need to hear this message. Like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of confusion in our world today, and more importantly in our church, about the nature of truth. There are many who believe that it is admirable to simply believe in God and try your best to live a life that's pleasing to Him. There's many who, who believe that that's all that's really needed. They believe as long as one puts their best foot forward and is sincere about what they believe, that's all that's needed. Folks, Jesus says otherwise. He says if we do not abide in him, if we do not believe in him and trust in him and follow him, we remain strangers and enemies of God, slaves to sin and sons of the devil. And he also makes it very clear that if we do not repent of that sin of unbelief and trust in him alone for our salvation, we will die in our sins. That's the truth. And if you're on this path this morning that I was talking about previously, I pray that changes right now. Pray this morning, if I have been describing you, if you can relate to the religious leaders of our story today, I pray that you would, you would turn from that sin of unbelief and I pray you would respond to the God of the scriptures, the God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus by turning from your sins and placing your trust and your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray.